I figured we'd start early since I got shit to do tonight. A little bit of a commentary recording with a good old friend of mine. Yeah, good times. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of Amon World, and I'm your host, Reverend Campbell. Great to have you. It is Sunday, June 27th, and uh, got a great show for you this week. In The Devil's Advocate, I'm going to give you one, just one, of my techniques for finding the third side, the uncomfortable third side perspective. In Infernal Informant, Four takeaways from the U.S. intelligence community's UFO report. And we're going to close it out with a real oldie that I can't believe I haven't done before. Because when I was a kid, it was like one of my favorite films. Willow in the Creature Feature. And let's be honest, there's some other reasons why I want to talk about it. But we'll get into that at the tail end of the show. That being said. Um, for those of you who have pets, you know that... Uh, they can be expensive if you have to take them to an emergency room. And our dog, um, Freya, who's a, a husky wolf hybrid, she, for the past couple days, has just sort of been whining when she stands up. And we've isolated the pain around her abdomen. It got to a point where in the middle of the night, not last night, but the night prior, uh, every single time she would shift or move, she would whine and wake us up. So in that morning, we took her outside and she would not even get up. She wouldn't use the bathroom. She wouldn't do anything. She was just in incredible amounts of pain. And so Sean is online, my wife, uh, looking at possible problems. And, uh, you know, I'm just sort of hands in the air like, I don't know what to do. We just have to wait for a vet to open so we can take her to a vet because, of course, they have regular business hours if it's a human any time of the day or night but if it's an animal let's just make them wait it's not as important if it's your dog we'll just you know let them wait and then there's no actual emergency room service for animals you have to have an appointment and so the best that we could do was drive across town and wait for uh like two hours or something for an opening to just happen to come up like that you know they're, they're all everything was booked out let's you know forbid your dog gets hit by a car or something and you need an immediate service to take care of them sorry you're just gonna have to wait your turn i guess which is true in an emergency room as well but it goes by severity of injury i don't know why i'm holding a coaster but i am so anyway they got her in, they x-rayed her, and it turns out she was just sort of backed up internally and that was pushing on nerves. And so they gave her some laxatives and a couple hours later, she seemed okay. And so I'm really glad that that was the only extent of the problem that she was experiencing. Really, really glad that that was it. But like laxatives was a solution and it was almost 500 bucks to determine, 
it was just laxatives that were needed. That's ridiculous. You have to drop $500 for laxatives. We bitch and moan about our human healthcare industry, but there's a racket in the animal healthcare industry as well. It's ridiculous. Uh, okay, let me uh, let me give a quick shout out. You guys are chatting it up up in here. Callista, thanks for jumping in so early too. It's good to see you. Scott, how you doing? Lexi, good morning. Dog, how you doing? Thanks for joining live. Uh, let's see, Lanny, good to see you in the live chat, man. How you doing, Zachary? Always great to see you. Uh, anyone else? Scott, thanks for joining live, man. Farith, how you doing? Vasuri, what up? Did I already say your name? I feel like I haven't seen you in a while. It's good to see you. Uh, ow. A-U-O-U. A-U-O. However you say your name. Thanks for joining live. <laughs> it's good to see you. Mike, what's up? Uh, just in time. Yes, you are. Brad, my man in Amsterdam. How you doing? Can't wait to see you soon. Uh, Rod, how you doing? Tony, what is happening? And Noch... <laughs> Nojness, Noiness, I don't know how you pronounce it. How you doing, Rhino? What's up? Cameron, John, I know you. I'm about to see you a little bit later today. Uh, and uh, I think that's everyone. All right. Thank you guys so much for uh, tuning in live to this early show of Nine Cents. Hell, if, if I knew you were all going to be showing up anyway, I would have just done this early all the time. <laughs> I mean, why not? No, I prefer it in the evenings. Okay. Um, critical race theory. I've been hit up by a couple of, maybe it's one person over and over again. In my memory, I think it's more than one person. Accusing me of being a critical race theory apologist, which at the time I knew nothing about and I was really surprised by. Um, and then I got someone, you know, just begging me to do something on critical, do a show with the topic of critical race theory, please. And the truth is, is that I can give you my opinion, but that's just me. That's just my opinion. So I thought I would bring in someone who is a bit more educated than I am. And we were going to do a show on Friday. We had to reschedule. So this coming Friday, maybe if all the stars align and we don't have any other issues that uh, arise, and let's be honest, life happens sometimes and you have to reschedule. But we're planning a critical race theory episode. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about its foundings. We're going to talk about uh, the detractors' message of it. And we're going to talk about why the detractors are speaking about it the way they are. And we're going to talk about some of the people who are using it as a platform um, for other reasons. So we're going to get into the whole scheme of it. So if you have opinions and you want to tune in live and share them, you're more than welcome to. Again, probably Friday. I'll put out an email on it to let you know for sure. Book club is tonight um if you've gotten a copy since the last time you heard about it you're always welcome to jump in wherever you want this week uh, after this show we're going to be doing uh we're going to be talking about chapter two and then next week we're going to be talking about chapter three so if at any of that any time like between now and next week if you want to jump in shoot me an email info at reverendcampbell.com and read chapter three so that you can discuss it with us next week and you can get up to the reading the rest of it and your own pace in your own time it'll be fun so far it's going well the truth is is i'm i'm planning on a much further than the second chapter i'm planning on doing uh, something about this book like uh, so i need to read ahead so i can get my questions in line 
Let's see what else. Uh, last week I finished reading The Great Gatsby, which is just uh, I love me The Great Gatsby. I got all like misty eyed and emotional at the end of it. Don't know why. I've read it before. I've seen the film numerous times. Never got emotional then, but for some reason this reading did. If you can stand me doing different voices. <laughs> I highly recommend you tuning in and checking it out. It's only three episodes, and most of them are like an hour and a half. The last one was two hours. But it's a great book, a lot of fun, and there's a bit of discourse during the, you know, between chapters as well. So check that out if you're so inclined. And if not, that's okay too. All right, let's dive into uh, The Devil's Advocate here. just for fun and then we will get into it i should preload these but they end up warping for some reason so that's why i don't do it um all right so technique for finding a third side i was i was <laughs> i think i was watching some fictional film or something and it just showed a scene that immediately reminded me of my early time in the military and a technique that was taught to me in order to see things in the dark. And I never thought about this before. And so when I heard it, it was eye-opening. Like I genuinely didn't think it would work, but the truth is it does. And the reality is, is that the technique is used in many different places and many different um, um, disciplines. And we'll get into that a little bit. It's sort of surface level, but I wanted to, present it as just one other technique in order to find a potential uncomfortable third side perspective in a topic or in a situation. And I do think that it applies and I do think uh, it could be interesting to some of you. So let's dive into it. Technique for finding a third side. When I was in the military and we would run night operations, I was taught how to see in the dusk and in the dark. And the trick is very simple. Don't look at what you're trying to see. Now, it doesn't sound logical, but if you're trying to look at something crawling through the brush right here, you want to look around this object. Don't look at it, look around it. And what you do is if you just look at it, your eye can't adjust in the middle of the night or in the dusk to the available light in order to see clearly what it is. But you do see around the periphery. For whatever reason, I don't know the science behind it. So if you look around the proximity of it, your periphery picks up the form of it and your mind will map that together and you'll actually see what you were trying to see in the first place. Again, it doesn't make sense that it should or does work, but it does. And you can apply this to literally anything, not necessarily the literal looking around something, but the figurative looking around something. Okay, so it reveals the objects spatially rather than directly, because you can't see it directly. The, object ex uh, the object's existence is suspected, but unknown, right? A lot of times you're going to hear things, you know, like just for example, the UFO uh, article that I'm going to talk about here in a little bit, or maybe it's 
uh, critical race theory. And you're trying to see what it actually is. But you can't because it's not being presented in reality the way it actually is. And we can parallel this idea with Satanism. What Satanism is purported to be in reality is very, very different than what it actually is. Now, we all know what it is because we're Satanists. But everyone out there doesn't know. So if they're just looking at the average person in media saying, hey, hey, look at me, I'm a Satanist, I got big horns on my head, and they're misrepresenting us, you know, to a fault, the outside world isn't going to know. But if they look around that fool, they look at the, the history about the actual religion itself, if they look at the writings that were published before that person came into place, if they looked at the media that is covering that person and what they're getting out of that coverage, i.e. looking around the person rather than at the person, then you're actually going to be forced to learn what the religion is about because you're going to investigate it. You're going to read about it. You're going to realize that the media is paying attention because it's getting clicks or it's trying to deliver a message. That message may not be true. And the only way you find out that reality is by looking into it. Um, scientists use this technique in order to discover black holes and arguably discover the existence of dark matter. You know, they use, um, uh, they, they, they reference the gravity, the gravitational lensing or the gravitational force that these entities have on the surrounding uh, bodies, celestial bodies, and they can tell that something is there. You can't actually see a negative, and so you see the reaction, the gravitational force of the negative. And that's how we detect a lot of things in space, is not the direct um, reflection of light from it, but the projected or the distortion around it. For example, looking at stars' light in the sky, you're not actually seeing the star. You're seeing the star as it was thousands of years ago when it start, started projecting that light toward us. It had to travel at the speed of light through the universe in order to hit your eye at this one moment. So you're not seeing the star as it is, you're seeing it as it was. The hard truth of the actual star is that it may not even exist, and we wouldn't know it until that final moment of light arrives. It's a way of, of testing reality for yourself, right? If there's a, a topic that uh, is, uh, you know, sort of a du jour topic that everyone is excited about and everyone's spreading misinformation and lies about, or, or maybe they're just sharing their own political agendas, um, it's helpful not to actually look at the topic, but instead, as I mentioned before, look around it. Try to figure out why it's being talked about, what they're getting out of it or what they're, they're um, distracting you from by bringing the topic up. And then you're gonna realize the uncomfortable third side perspective of that topic. It's not gonna work in every situation, but in most situations, it's going to be very, very beneficial. And this goes for interpersonal relationships as well. You know, it can help you discover whether or not you have, uh, uh, well, whether you are a psychic vampire, though you wouldn't, arguably, you wouldn't be doing the, the exploration of the idea of it if you were. But if you're, you know, connected with a psychic vampire, Look around that relationship. Are you getting anything out of it? 
Instead of just looking at the back and forth of the individual who is clearly manipulating you so much so that you would never even suspect it most times, if you look around them, then you're going to see, do they have other people in their lives? How do they treat the other people in their lives? Is it different from you? What are you getting out of this reciprocal, supposedly reciprocal relationship, if anything at all? It's an important way to examine different parts of your life that I just happened to learn about because I was in a foxhole with a friend in the middle of the night. Nice little trick that I really appreciated. So, uh, just to reinforce ideas here, how do you apply this technique to your life? Look at the effects of the subject has on those around it, those supporting and fighting an issue. Examine if it truly affects their lives or if it's all manufactured. Examine its effects on your life. Does, it, does this issue really have any effect on you at all? And if it doesn't, why do you care about it? Why are you so concerned about it? And why are you fighting for or against it? If it doesn't affect you at all, why are you so up in arms about it? Um, this can be applied to a lot of different social media issues. Um, look into how the subject's gravity affects others outside of your social circles. Because social media and arguably wherever we get our news, we tend to find ourselves in an, an echo chamber, right? This sort of vacuum of information that, that doesn't really bring in outside perspectives very often, unless you're aware about that stuff, but most people aren't. Um, they just like to sit in their comfort bubbles of knowledge. You're never actually going to learn whether something's a real issue or whether it's just a hyped issue. You know, for the people who really believe the QAnon bullshit, well, they're existing in those little QAnon bubbles. Do you think they're looking around those issues to try to find out why they're buying into all this stuff? Whether it should actually affect their lives? Whether there is really a satanic cult Hollywood elite conspiracy? No, they don't. They're not. They're just in this little echo chamber smelling their own farts. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. Um don't smell your own faults. Ventilate, people. Uh, if it doesn't directly affect you or your loved ones, does it affect them indirectly? Can you live with the effect that it has if it does affect them? Is it a nuisance or is it a dramatic effect? And ultimately what you're going to do is prime yourself to be able to discover that uncomfortable third side perspective by looking around the issue rather than directly at the issue. Study, question all things, and you can find your third side perspective very simply. So anyway, I hope that was helpful to you guys. Uh, it's just what I have picked up and uh, it ends up working. I'm sure you guys have, are throwing out much more scientific ways of, of looking at this <laughs> terms. <laughs> but I used my military experience because that's what I know. So um, what do you guys have to say before we move on here? You're talking about mosquitoes. You guys are killing me. <laughs> uh, the center of the retina tends to be less sensitive to low light due to the way your eye focuses on light during the day. You can observe this effect within your own eye if you look through a pinhole in the bright sky. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've done that too. We all, uh, also use Doppler effect quite a bit. Parallax effect, as Lazarus is saying. Um, Lanny's saying he's picking up what I'm putting down. He's thinking, though, about how many Satanists use this method naturally. You know you often do. Yeah. And again, 
anytime I, I talk about a subject or I bring up an idea, the chances that you guys already know it or you've already experienced it are pretty damn high. I'm just sharing ideas. That's it. So if you do have experience or you do have techniques, this is the time when you should be sharing them and, and putting those ideas out there. Because one, you're just going to educate other people who may not be exposed to the, those ideas. And two, you may be able to have a really healthy back and forth about what's more effective or less effective in different techniques to be used. I mean, this is literally like the doctor's magic circles back in the day. That's what this chat room can be. And that's, in best cases, what it is. Uh, you're also naming and categorizing the experience, which is helpful. Oh, nice. Okay, so that's all for this devil's advocate. Let's do a little bit of uh, infro informant here and have a little bit of fun with this one, too. switch out this image four takeaways from the u.s intelligence's community ufo report this is actually a cnn article and i gotta read so i gotta pull out my glasses the u.s intelligence community on friday released a hotly anticipated report on what it knows about a series of mysterious sightings of unidentified flying objects by navy pilots and others the report, which examines 144 reports of what the government terms unexplained aerial phenomena between 2004 and 2021, is among the first acknowledgments by the U.S. government that it is looking into UFOs as a serious national security concern. UAP clearly poses a safety of flight issues and may pose a challenge to U.S. national security, the report states. Here are the top four takeaways of the report. One. No evidence of aliens. But what are they? Investigators found no evidence that the sightings represented extraterrestrial life, a senior U.S. official told reporters on Friday, although they didn't rule out the possibility. Of the 144 reports we are dealing with here, we have no clear indications of what there, um, that there are any non-terrestrial explanations for them, but we will go wherever the data takes us, the official said. If there are not visiting life from another world, that doesn't mean investigators know what these strange sightings are. Of the 144 reports covered in the study, officials were able to obtain uh, explain only one of them. Investigators were convinced that the majority of the sightings were indeed physical objects, the official told reporters on Friday. Quote, most of the UAP reported probably do represent physical objects given that a majority of UAP were registered across multiple sensors uh, to include radar, infrared, electro-optical, weapon seekers, and visual observation, the reports found. In 11 cases, pilots reported near-miss collisions with these strange objects. Two, no evidence of foreign government involvement either. For lawmakers, intelligence and military personnel working on the issue, the bigger and more likely concern was not that alien life is visiting Earth, but rather that a foreign adversary like Russia or China might have developed some kind of next-generation technology that the United States doesn't know about. 
At least for now, there's no evidence that the strange sightings are foreign surveillance or new technology, the report found. Still, it's possible that some of the 143 unexplained cases might wind up being foreign technology. That's one of the reasons the report doesn't include more examples of the sightings that haven't previously been made public. They're very sensitive, too, if this is an adversary. You want to be really careful about saying, we know this and we don't know that, said Representative Jim Himes, a Connecticut Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee uh, who received a briefing on the matter from Navy and FBI officials last week. The report is going to be a little unsatisfying for that reason, and that reason alone, he said. Three, why don't they know more? In short, bad data. The limited amount of high-quality reporting on unidentified aerial phenomena hampers our ability to draw firm conclusions about the nature or intent of UAP, the report found. Officials don't believe any two of these 144 sightings are necessarily the same thing. For the report, investigators try to sort the incidents into five categories. Airborne clutter, like birds or weather balloons, natural atmospheric phenomena, U.S. government or industry development programs, foreign adversary systems, and an alluring catch-all. Other. But in 143 cases, analysts simply lack the technical information they need to be able to confirm, um, I'm sorry, to be able to come to firm conclusions. Some reports of sightings included no sensor data at all for engineers to examine, but rather were solely verbal recollections by pilots. Reporting was also hampered by the cultural stigma associated with UFO investigations found. Narratives from aviators on the operational community and analysts from the military and IC describe disparagement associated with observing UAP, reporting it, or attempting to discuss it with colleagues, the report said. Part of what the Pentagon and the intelligence community intend to do next is develop a standardized reporting system for sightings. They also plan to begin collecting data in places where pilots are not flying to see if there is a baseline level of activity that they can record. Right now, the senior U.S. official said there is a reporting bias in the database of sightings they have because most of the reports they have are from Navy pilots. And four, UFOologists and some lawmakers disappointed. <laughs> some congressional sources who have seen the classified versions of the report have already expressed disappointment there's not more of an explanation for the episodes, saying the report raises more questions than it answers. Many lawmakers said the report signaled a need for further study on UFOs. This report is an important first step in cataloging these incidents, but it's just a first step, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, the top Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee, said in a statement on Friday. The Defense Department intelligence community have a lot of work to do before we can actually understand whether these aerial threats present a serious national security concern. The report is almost certain to disappoint UFOologists, who have hoped it might offer definitive proof that the U.S. government has made contact with extraterrestrial life, what is known in those communities as the disclosure. But the report does signal an extraordinary shift in attitudes from the national security community about what had long been considered a fringe issue after years of Washington infighting. Erasing the stigma surrounding a serious discussion of UFOs was also the goal for the lawmakers in 2020 when they passed legislation requiring the Pentagon and intelligence communities to produce this report. The goal at least appears to be within sight, some lawmakers say. 
The stigma's gone, Representative Mike Quigley, Democrat of Illinois, said last week following the House Intelligence Committee briefing. The fact that they are taking this sort of seri this sort of seriously for the first time, I think is important, Quigley added. So that's the article. I wanted to talk about possibilities of this because that's what I find more interesting. And let's apply maybe a little bit of that technique I was talking about earlier. Um, there's a lot of comments being blocked for some reason. Okay, um, first of all, some government agencies may know more than this committee or are able to talk about in this report. It's a possibility. This is literally all that we know and there's no other actual information out there. Another possibility. They're trying to focus on this to detract us from other issues going on because let's admit it, this is salacious, this is exciting. This is a promise of something that has been long speculated in uh, popular culture since way before um, uh, X-Files really brought it up to the uh, cultural vernacular. Um, but, you know, we've been fantasizing about sci-fi and aliens since as long as we've been able to look at the sky. I mean, you look at some of these religious uh, and um, cultural paintings on cave walls and, and uh, um, uh, frescoes. And you can't help but come, I mean, again, we're looking at it through our lens, but it does look like there's some sort of extraterrestrial influence, even if it's all science fiction or fantasy from our ancestors, uh, you know, our cultural roots. There's, again, we're applying our, a new lens to an idea that is as old as time, and that is intradimensional beings existing. A lot of ancient cultures would consume um, psychedelics. Uh, the Eucharist, for fuck's sake, was drug-induced hallucinations. And that's the way, like all these miracles happened back in the day. <laughs> they were drug-induced religious rites. And so yes, you, you, you're supposed to be seeing through this reality to some new reality. You're seeing things that don't exist. So there's always been this idea of this extra dimensional entity intelligence. Our current lens is UFOs and spacecraft, but back in the day, it was this spiritual realm. It was the heavens or it was hell or, you know, whatever the culture you're speaking to defines it. As Satanists, we have to take that into consideration because it's ultimately just part of the human experience. It's not something new. It's not something sinister. It's not something that is outside of our realm of experience. It is part of the human experience. Understanding that there's something greater or out there or, or untouchable or that we've been visited in some way or that our ancient knowledges were gifted to us by some more intelligent beings. That has always been there. And that's why you have on the History Channel, no less, ugh, these UFO shows that are just ridiculous. You know, they're, they're applying UFO technology to our own human ability to build structures, which I don't know why we think we're stupider than we actually are, but we do. We like to just attribute it to other things rather than our own ingenuity. Um, but if you look at some of these ancient structures, um, um, 
it's eluding me now. It was uncovered. I think it was like in uh, 04 or something. Gobleki Tepe. Um, it was literally buried by mankind in, uh, and it's this massive communal structure that should not have existed. One, the technology wasn't supposed to have existed at the time that it was buried. But two, there shouldn't have been people around that would have been able to create something like that in order to then refill it and preserve it for future generations. It speaks to this human cycle of development and destruction, either externally or internally. Uh, most of the time it's because of external factors, whether it's, you know, the planet suffering massive cataclysmic events like comets or meteors or rising tides or a combination of all of the above. Most cultures speak of these cataclysms and that's where the biblical flood comes from. Um, Gilgamesh, ancient Sumeria tale, spoke of ancient floods uh, before the Bible hijacked it. So all I'm saying by, by referencing all of this is that the way I see it is UFOs are just the modern version of that. We're, we're literally looking at unknown phenomena and applying our pop culture sensibility to explain it away without admitting that we literally don't know what it is. And I love um, um, Neil deGrasse Titan's, uh, Tyson's take on the, hey, isn't Titan. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's take on this is that we say that we don't understand what it is, and then we immediately say it's a UFO. And you can say unidentified flying object, but we all know what you mean when you say UFO. You don't mean that you don't understand what it is. You're saying it's aliens. Let's just admit that we don't know what it is, and that's all this report is saying. We have seen it. We have testimony. We have cataloged it. We have data, but it's not conclusive. You don't even include eyesight, um, uh, first-person witnessing as reliable testimony in court cases, why would we rely on that for UFOs? You know, proof of alien life when there's no other evidence. And so where he is much more skeptical than I am in, you know, the possibility that this is some form of, of uh, other life analyzing or exploring or studying or cataloging or whatever, I want to believe, um, how do we know that we're just not falling in the same old traps, you know? Um, the same old traps of, of, of claiming that it's gods when lightning is striking rather than atmospheric discharge. I mean, it's, it's... We have to be able to admit our own ignorance and accept that and be comfortable in that. And it's fun to fantasize and hypothesize, but unless you're testing that hypothesis in some way, it's just fantasy. It's just pseudoscience, ultimately. And so I, as much as when I first mentioned this a few weeks ago about this report being released soon, and I said that it's not going to matter because people who want to believe are still going to say they're covering something up and people who don't believe are going to say, ha, see, we don't have any information. There's nothing to prove that it isn't terrestrial or it isn't you know, our neighbors or Russia or China or something. No one's going to be happy with the findings. And true to form, no one's happy with the findings. But does it affect you? Does it affect your life in any way? Other than the excitement, the interest of it, no. This doesn't affect us in any way at all whatsoever, period. So why should we let it affect us?
with everything, one thing I'm, I'm getting from reading the We Are Satanist book, um, and, and clearly if you've read any of um, Anton LaVey's previous writings, you understand that he was a big pessimist when it came to pop culture and the power and magnitude radio at the time, but then ultimately television and religion had on the population's psyche. And, you know, he would caution you against being sucked into TV because, again, it takes away your ability to um, actively examine and exist in the moment because you're just passively soaking in whatever's being fed to you. That's the same thing with UFOs. There's no way to actively engage and question and, and test it. All we're doing is passively accepting others' ideas. Unless you've had some weird firsthand account that you can't explain that you're convinced of was aliens, then you are literally going off of stories of stories of stories. So we would never believe that is true if it were in any other case. So why in this particular one do we think that it must be real? Again, I personally think this is more of a distraction than an enlightening document. I'm infuriated that we're spending time on this rather than infrastructure. I'm infuriated that we're spending time on this rather than healthcare or education or homelessness or symptoms that are really truly affecting the American populace on a daily basis rather than stuff like this, which yes is exciting, but it, there's no meat to it. It's all just fluff. It's all air. It's all just excitement and energy, but nothing actually comes out of it. It's worse than masturbation because at least the, the end of masturbation, you got something to count. Um, I stole that from George Carlin, <laughs> shamelessly. So, I want to believe, though. <laughs> Let me just say that. I want to believe badly. Oh, I just want proof. I want evidence. But I don't have any. What do you guys think? Dimensions exist in the same place as everything else, though. The first and second dimensions are incorporated into the third, not consumed by or outside of them. Um, our ability to evaluate evidence is limited to our senses. There's a whole bunch of shit we can't perceive, and it still exists. We only get to perceive it obliquely. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's just to speak to the 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 pathetic nature of the human body. There are wavelengths of light that we cannot see. The only way we know they exist is because we created machines that have observed them. How insane is that? Our entire experience is primarily sight. And we can't even see everything in our own world. That's an insane thought to really, like, focus on for a minute. There could be... Again, this is pure me just sort of going out there on a weird, weird, weird uh, ledge here. <laughs> what if there are entities that exist in wavelengths of light that we simply cannot perceive because our eyes evolved under the damn water? <laughs> we would never know they existed because we couldn't see them. How insane is that? I don't know. I think it's I think it's fascinating to, to sort of think about this stuff, but most people think you're high when you <laughs> talk about stuff like that. I think it's great. Uh, evolution only gifted us the senses we needed to survive and hunt and avoid predators. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the, the downside of evolution 
it's a function-based process, and that's it. No extra flourishes for fun. Uh, imagine having a sixth sense that allows you to see those wavelengths. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Um, let's see. Physics will likely never be completely understood. The point at which that occurs will be a very strange time for life in the universe. Yeah, I, I, this is, again, another point that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson always harkens on. And it's, he says it's one of those ideas that keeps him up in my, uh, at night. What if we're just not smart enough as a species to be able to understand these things? You know, we claim to be this intelligent species compared to the other species on the planet, which there's no evidence to prove that of. That's just us glorifying ourselves, our own egos. <laughs> what if other animals on the planet can perceive ideas that we simply will never be able to? And hence, with our help, we, with their assistance, we could then deduce some sort of knowledge that we would otherwise not have any connection to. I mean, but we're too stupid. Our own arrogance, our own ego would not allow us to explore that possibility because we see ourselves as only uh, intelligent creatures on this planet. It's insane. Or what if simply the way life was created on Earth and evolved on Earth prevents it from being able to conceive of universalities in science. We just, we're just not good enough as a biological chemical entity in order to understand it. And that's a real possibility. And that's a terrifying thought if you actually want to understand some of these big questions. So maybe we just aren't good enough and we have to come to terms with that. As excellent as we claim to be, as enlightened, as uh, the highest embodiment of human life, still ain't good enough. <laughs> Just come to terms with it. You'll feel better. All right, let's do a little creature feature. I know people hate this film. I adore this film. <laughs> Willow, this is the uh, 1988 American dark fantasy drama film directed by Ron Hauer, created by George Lucas. He actually was conceiving it back in 77 and he finally got around to solidifying the idea of the story and uh, presented it to Ron Hauer to direct. It was written, uh, the script was uh, written by Bob Dolman from the story by George Lucas. Um, the logline is, a young farmer is chosen to undertake a perilous journey in order to protect a special baby from an evil queen. Very, you know, uninteresting sounding. But this was a, a, a pivotal film, not just for ILM, but for storytelling in its step from analog to digital filmmaking. And at the time, there were really no epic scale fantasy films out that could compare to this. You know, you had Excalibur, which was very confined feeling. It, you know, it told, I, first of all, I love that film. So it, it told a really interesting story. You know, the, the Knights of the Round Table, the King Arthur legend. 
but it was again very confined. It didn't feel grand. There wasn't a universe behind it. It was just the myth itself. Uh, IMDb has this sitting at 7.3 out of 10. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 51% rotten, 79% audience score. So there's a huge disparity between the critics and the fans of this film, clearly. It stars Val Kilmer as Mad Mardigan, the uh, swashbuckling warrior Joanne Whaley as Sorsha, the daughter to Queen Bavmorda and the King of Tirasleen. Um, she's sort of working with the bad guys and then flips at the end. Warwick Davis is, plays Willow Upgood, who is the hero. And then Jean Marsh queen, plays Queen Bavmorda, the ultimate bad guy or bad woman in this film. Again, we, we tend to think of villains... I tend to think... This is all just to me to say that. But, you know, you have like Gargamel and the Smurfs, who's like this, you know, sort of bumbling bad guy idiot. You have every bad guy in Scooby-Doo, who, again, is just sort of a bumbling bad guy idiot. Bad guys weren't really evil. They, they were never like alien. You know what I mean? Like, like just personifications of darkness. Even Nightmare on Elm Street with Freddy Krueger, he turned into this sort of like, you know, goofy one-liner guy. The first film was very scary. The remake was pretty scary, but all the others, it was all just sort of pop culture, quippy one-liners. Make you laugh and scream at the same time. So bad guys in this era weren't truly just horrific bad guys. Queen Bavmorda, however, was bad as they come. She is scary as shit. She didn't mind murdering babies, banishing them to different realities. She would do anything she had to do in order to maintain control. And she looked evil as shit. Like, she was the equivalent of a live-action um, screen form as Mumra was in uh, Thundercats, the cartoon, when I was a kid. I don't know if any of you know that reference. That was a scary villain. But she's like the real-life version of it. It was so great. It was so scary. And the whole setting of it was dark fantasy. It wasn't that, you know, in the, in the 70s and 80s, there's a lot of fantasy that was, you know, a little leaning on medieval, but then they added all these fantastical elements in it that sort of, you know, make it a little bit safe feeling. This was just a gritty world where people were just thrown in crow's cages and left, abandoned. That's where we run across Mad Mardigan, for example. Um, but again, speaking to that bridge between analog special effects and digital special effects, ILM, when they were making this, they came up with morphing technology in order to create that scene where um, Finn Rizal turns from, uh, I think she was a, a goat at the time, into the actual woman that she was originally transformed from by Queen Bavmorda years prior. So there's a lot of special effects that we take for granted that we just think... They've always been like that, but the, no, this, this film was the bridge for that. Because after this, it was The Abyss. It was T2. Like, those were huge special effects films, and if it wasn't for the morphing technology that Willow... <laughs> gotta point the right direction. That Willow helped spur through Industrial Light and Magic, and ultimately George Lucas, because he ran that company. Um, it was his innovations that pushed storytelling into real possibilities um, with special effects. So you gotta, at, if no other reason, tip your hat to this movie for that aspect alone. It had a $35 million budget. Its box office take was $137.6 million, which is not a lot considering. It was considered a bit of a flop. Um, but it, I, I remember as a kid, there was tons of commercials all the time. There was huge deals with... Um, 
um, fast food restaurants for like their you know like Happy Meal type stuff, you know, um, little toys and everything. They made board games and video games and comic books and everything off of it. So it was a huge IP generator. Of course, if George Lucas is involved, of course they're going to go with that direction. Um, and the music, the music is a silent killer because it is played in so many action films since that no one even knows it's attributed to to Willow. Like the whole main theme score I've heard in at least 15 different films since. And they're not all fantasy, they're not all adventure, but it's just the music by James Horner was so good that they just stole it from other films. It's crazy. Uh, it got tons of nominations as well, though, and it's a little bit of an embarrassment um, for them, but it came out at the same time that Whom Framed Roger Rabbit did, and that actually stole a lot of the wins <laughs> in the Academy Awards in that time for what they were nominated for. Which, let's be honest, that was a, in the day, that was a pretty fun film too. Um, but it had Academy Awards for uh, nominations for sound effects, editing and visual effects, best costume design, which it actually won, uh, best performance from a young actor in Warwick Davis, best supporting actress in Jean Marsh for Queen Bavmorda, a best fantasy film at the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. It is also nominated for two Golden Raspberry Awards for <laughs> Worst Screenplay, which I don't understand at all because I genuinely love this film. This film hit me in a, in a, a time in my life when uh, I was baptized into the Mormon religion and I did not want to go to that religion anymore I did not connect with the other kids there. I did not connect with the idea of the religion. And so I just told my parents, look, I just want to stay home. I don't want to go to church anymore. I, 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 it's not, you know, it's not clicking with me. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. I'm not happy. And so they said, okay, fine, you can stay home. So every time, every week when they would go to church, I would put this VHS in and I would just watch Willow for two hours and absorb this fantasy world. Influenced so much of a direction of art and uh, literature that would come later in my life that it was all because of this one film it had a huge impact on me. Um, now, you may say, "Why the hell are you talking about this? This makes no sense. This is a, an old movie from the '80s." Well, yeah, you're right. But due to the limited but the success of Ron Howard's solo film. Uh, he was a sort of pickup director for the solo film project uh, for Lucasfilm slash Disney. Disney actually decided to revive Willow and create a series out of it. So for some of you who don't know, I already reviewed the trilogy of books on a previous episode that were a sort of a sequel to the Willow film. Um, Disney Plus is doing a series that I don't think is based on those books at all, but it's just following, you know, sort of a young generation of actors and Willow is sort of the old wizard, I guess, in the film, in the series, but he's supposed to be in it a lot. Um, and it's supposed to be coming out next year. And so, you know, because again, it's all Lucasfilm and stuff, uh, Cameron and I are going to be talking about it on our Star Wars channel and stuff. And so that's why I wanted to bring it up here because I'd never spoken about it before. And out of context, I, I think I've spoken about the film, but not in the context of where I was in my life and the impact that it had on me um, as a sort of a breaking point between a Mormon religion and a, a free form, free thought Adam, you know? 
and for those of you who've broken away from religions that are very, very cult-like, like Mormonism is, very community-centric, like Mormonism is, it, that was a big pivotal moment for me. Like I went from being a hive mind to being my own mind. And it took me a long time to sort of break that train of thought, the way that you, they program you. Um, and that opened the door for Satanism for me as a religion. Um, and so it was really, really important. So just reflecting nostalgia alone, this was that moment. This film was that moment for me, which is awesome. So anyway, yeah, you think a lot of the older movies had better plots and inspired more creative ideas than those of us in those of us watching. Yeah, and you know, some of that may just be the, the impressionable age we were when we saw them. Some of it may just be reflecting back in nostalgia. Uh, some of it may be just because it was genuinely a good movie. I, it's hard for me to, to tell whether this was a really good movie or if I just remember it as being a good movie and that's why I really love it, which I sort of lean toward. But I love talking about it. I love re-watching it. I love the characters and the actors in the day because they were in their prime. I love George Lucas's storytelling in that time because it was pure adventure. And again, unforgivably dark. You know, we forget that Disney played with a lot of dark themes like the film Watcher in the Woods and the, dark, uh, the, the, the Black Cauldron, where, and even arguably, you know, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, there's some really dark song sequences in that. Disney played with some really dark themes back in the day, but then they stopped in the late 80s and they moved to more safer, you know, sort of more palatable to a, an ignorant audience, I'll say. And they made that pivot hard. And uh, this was in the day when it was okay to be dark. I don't know if you could make this film nowadays because, again, it, it focused on insulting little people, calling them pecs, and how they were sort of literally kicked. <laughs> There's a scene when Willow Upgood, who is a little person, is holding or he's, he's trying to get the baby away from Mad Mardigan, who is dressed up as a woman. Again, I don't know if you could get away with this in a, a modern film. But Sorcia just walks up and literally kicks this little guy and he like goes flying across the room. You can't drop kick a little person nowadays. People would lose their minds. <laughs> and there, <laughs> there's another scene where Val Kilmer's dressed as a woman and the woman that he was fucking, her husband comes in. So he dressed like the woman in order to, you know, act like he's not having an affair. And the guy literally comes on to her and starts sexually assaulting Mad Mardigan grabbing her his supposed boobs telling her he wants to breed with her like you couldn't do this stuff again not nowadays no way it would just i don't know i want to live in a world where if it's consensual you can kick little people and you can sexually assault guys dressed as women i'm putting it out there <laughs> as long as it's consensual is all i'm saying all right that's all i had <laughs> this episode a little bit weird uh i hope you guys enjoyed it for, i don't know you probably enjoyed talking amongst yourselves more than you liked uh, the show itself but i appreciate you guys for tuning in uh you can view past episodes of the satanic series on reverendcampbell.com if you want to learn more about satanism or the truth of satan read the satanic bible you can always pick this up as well it's a really really great read so far um who knows it may take a dive in the second half <laughs> you don't know till you get there <laughs> i'm enjoying it thus far though uh, or you can check out the website, reverendchurchofsatan.com for Satanism, for sure. Go check that out. 
If you'd like to learn uh, more about um, the stent content I produced, you can always subscribe to the YouTube channel, sign up to the email list. And that's kind of it. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Have a fantastic week. And until next week, hail Satan.